I better repent before I even try to preach, I guess. I'm going to ask you to go back with me tonight to the Gospel of John. I want you to go to the first chapter, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. While you're looking for that, there are three major holidays on the Christian calendar. Uh, We celebrate them Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. Uh, We just come through the Easter season where on Good Friday, which was a terrible Friday until Sunday, they crucified Jesus, and Sunday he triumphantly rose from the dead. I mentioned that on Sunday morning. I shared a bit on that subject matter. And, of course, 50 days from that day, uh, Pentecost occurred where the Holy Spirit, following the ascension of Christ, was poured out upon the church. But none of that could have taken place had Jesus not come in the flesh. And that's what we commemorate, of course, on Christmas. And I like to go back to Christmas. Uh, I I think sometimes we so relegate these days uh, on a calendar, we think we can't touch them the rest of the year. Well, I got news for you. I can and I will. So I want to ask you to stand with me if you have your Bibles. And I want to read the first five verses then I'll just lift from my text, verse 14. In verse, first chapter of John, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now we understand, of course, that word, Word, there is the living Christ. He was with God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Verse 14, And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Shall we pray? Father, as we sit in the sense of your presence tonight, and as we worship indeed the, and through the songs and through the prayers of your people, and now through the reading of your word and this proclamation, we ask that you would speak to us on a very personal level. May we understand, Lord, as never before, that we will need this one day when we make heaven our home. That this is not relegated to someone outside the walls of the church. It's relegated to us this evening sitting in the pews, standing in the pulpit. So we ask as you would minister to us, we would be quick to respond in obedience to whatever you want to say to us. And as the servant of old said, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. may be seated. Without controversy, Paul tells us over in the Timothy letter, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Now that mystery was not the mystery of darkness. It's the mystery of light. And if you would read a little further from where I stopped in verse 5, it would say, he's the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And the darkness could not comprehend it. Now, that's the English way of saying the darkness could not put it out. 
I want to give you three words to hang your thoughts on tonight. I, I do it from time to time so you'll kind of know where I'm going. I want you to notice with me the identification of the word. I want to identify this word that we talk about. And we understand while this is the written word that we read from, he is the living word. Jesus is the living word that we receive. But following the identification, I want you to notice the incarnation of the word. The word was made flesh, became incarnate, if you please. And then amidst those two, there's an interesting statement that is written where he says in 11th and 12, he came into his own, his own received him not, but to as many as did receive him. To them gave he the power to become the sons of God. So there is the invitation of the word. So the identification, the incarnation, and the invitation of the word. Now when you study God's word in, in whole, you will immediately recognize there's a similarity between the opening words of Genesis and the opening words of John. Not to say the opening words of the Hebrew letter, but I'll just lay that aside this evening. In Genesis, it opens up with these, this, these words. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here you notice it says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Consequently, the first statement in Genesis, in the beginning, God created, is the language of creation. However, when you read John's gospel, the first verse is the language of recreation, the language of redemption. The first word was a vocal word sounding across the spaces when God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. However, 4,000 years down the road, when Jesus was born in the lowly manger of Bethlehem, the vocal word became the visible word spelled out in human living form. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and God spoke, as I mentioned to you. And when he spoke, and by the way, every time God spoke, something happened. The reason being, God's words are deeds. We do a lot of chattering that has no merit or meaning, but not God. And when God spoke, he brought cosmos out of chaos. He spoke, and there it was. I think in the first chapter of Genesis, six different times, the phrase from evening to morning is recorded, from evening to morning. Now, that's very significant because man normally moves from morning to evening. That's from light to darkness. God doesn't. He always moves from darkness to light, the evening and the morning. And so following the fall, the world and all of its conditions was chaotic again, and darkness was almost impenetrable. And the only ray of light was the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve, if you remember, when he said that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. You find that over in the third chapter of Genesis, and what he was talking about, the seed of the woman would be Jesus Christ who would come into the world, and as a result of his death on the cross, he would bruise the serpent's head, and it was through death he destroyed him that had the power of death. And so 4,000 years later, that vocal word became the visible word. When we read this evening, the word was made flesh, and we beheld him in all of his glory. Now, there's an interesting parallel between physical light and spiritual light. 
For example, the world without light would be a very gloomy, very gloomy dungeon to live in. In fact, if you read the second Thessalonian letter, it tells us that we are the children of the day, we're not of the night. Consequently, sunshine is very important in our world. In fact, it serves as a disinfectant for both the body and the mind. Psychiatrists today use light and sunshine particularly with people who are battling with depression. There are some who have massive lights in their home because the darkness is a very depressing thing to them and they wrestle with that mentally and so they use this thing called light. Darkness always breeds disease. In fact, all kinds of insects and vermin do the destructive work in the dark. Years ago in the Second World War, they tell me during the Blitzkrieg when London was constantly in darkness because they did not want the planes to see the light down below to bomb them, and they did anyhow, but they had these, in fact, I think we used to have these blinds that you would draw down, make sure no light was shining out for the planes overhead. But they said London was so engulfed in darkness for so many days that the rat population began to take over. And they had to have a day of killing rats to preserve them from a terrible disease. The rat killing day, they called it. Cities with a population of a thousand or more. One day, they did a study and discovered there's a correlation between crime and darkness. And of those cities that finally received adequate light in the cities, crime decreased upwards of 90%. And on an average, 43%. I'm just saying this because there's danger in darkness and there's safety in light. Jesus is the light of the world and without him, what a dangerous, dark, devastating place this would be. And so he is the light of the world and he was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's the identification that I'll take time. I'll move quickly from that because I want you to notice the incarnation, his being made flesh. The word clothed himself with flesh and blood, and in Hebrews it says that God spoke in times past unto the fathers, unto our fathers, by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken unto us by his Son. Now the reason that was true, while the prophets did their prophesying and the priests did their ministering, there was a message that neither a poet or a prophet could deliver. God engaged his only son because that was a greater word than had ever been spoken before, and no one could speak that word but Jesus himself. A thought, and you're sitting there even now thinking, a thought is an invisible creation of the mind. But I can tell you it remains a mystery except to the one who is thinking it. It remains a mystery until that thought takes shape in speech. And I'm saying that because in creation, long before this world was created, the triune Godhead sat in thought, and in themselves they said, let us make man in our own image and after our likeness. That was the deep thought of God, and then finally God spoke, and it happened. And having created the heavens and the earth and all that was involved, finally he said he scooped up the red earth and he molded man out of the dust of the ground and when he did he breathed into man the breath of lives 
And it says lives, plural, because he not only had physical life, he gave him the very life of God, spiritual life as well. In fact, when man sinned in the garden, it was that spiritual life that died. When it said, thou shalt surely die, and they said they didn't die, they lived on. No, they didn't die because God had provided a platform for them to live and give them a stay of execution so that they could come back to him. But at that moment, spiritually, they died. So much so that it caused an estrangement for the first time between God the creator and man the created. But now since the fall, he speaks again, and this time he speaks to his son the mystery of redemption. The word incarnation, we don't use these words oftentimes, but maybe we ought to become more and more familiar with them, is the union of divinity with humanity, God becoming man. He is the God-man, and by the way, He was as much God as though he wasn't man, and he was as much man as though he wasn't God. And this incarnation is the keystone arch in the Christian faith. I say that because there are those who would try to argue that there is no such mystery or miracle that could ever happen as that. You and I both know as we walk with Jesus across the years that it is the only hope that humanity has. Jesus' humanity, when he walked in this world, did not eclipse his deity, and his deity did not extinguish his humanity. There was a man that I'm good friends with. He's in heaven tonight, but he wrote several books, Dr. E. W. McCumber. He made an interesting statement about those who question this whole concept of the virgin birth and the birth of God in man. If man rejects the mystery of the incarnation, he says it's not because their mind is too great to accept it, it's because their God is too small to affect it. We serve a God that can affect it. He's a big God, let me assure you. So when Jesus came into the world, he was first of all the supreme revelation of God to man. He was God manifest in the flesh. When you have seen Jesus, you remember John 14, I believe it was, about the sixth or seventh verse, when Jesus told them, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And he's finally, Philip said, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. And finally, he says, show us the Father, and it'll satisfy us. And Jesus looked at him. You have to understand, these men had been walking with Jesus for three and a half years. And Jesus had been teaching them all these days. And all of a sudden, he looked at Philip, and I get a sense he was so distraught. Philip, have I been with you so long? Don't you understand? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. By the way, I've always tried to tell people, if anybody asks you what God is like, I tell them, walk through the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Walk where Jesus walks, and that's God. You can know exactly. He's the supreme revelation to man. He came to reveal the Father to you and me. But he's also God's superlative example for man. He was not only God's perfect man, he's man's perfect God. He is as man was supposed to be. He is what man will one day be when we make heaven our home. He was God's supreme sacrifice for man. In Adam, 
You remember when he was tempted of the devil, he believed the devil's lie. He accepted the devil's lordship. He received the devil's likeness. So all of that had to be reversed. So when Jesus came into the world, and when he died, the Lamb of God, for the salvation of the whole world, and when he gave up the ghost and provided for you and me this great redemptive plan, he exposed the devil's lie. He expelled his lordship, and he expunged his likeness. In Christ, we have hope. Now, there are two uh, symbols in Christianity. There is the cradle and the cross. I've already mentioned to you there are three major days on the Christian calendar, but the cradle and the cross are very important. The cradle, the birth of Christ, in the lowly manger of Bethlehem, the cradle was where God became man. However, the cross is where the God-man was made sin. Made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He suffered the penalty that I incurred. I was the guilty one, not Jesus, but he was the one who came all the way to Calvary to bear my sin. So the Christmas without Calvary's cross would be eternally incomplete. And what the first Adam did in the garden, sacrilegiously so, the last Adam sacrificially reaped on the cross what Adam sowed and by the way when I speak of Adam I'm speaking the whole human race what Adam sowed in the garden Jesus the second Adam reaped on the cross and the first Adam sinned you know if you study Luke 15 you have the story of the prodigal son I think it's one of the greatest stories in in all the Bible. I think Charles Dickens said it was the greatest story he ever read in the Bible. Well, I, I like the story of the prodigal son. Well, man's sin, the whole human race became a prodigal race. Not only the prodigal son. When you read about the prodigal son, you're reading about the human race that took place. And man declared his rights to himself and demanded his inheritance. And the father reluctantly gave him what he demanded. And man departed into a far country and man consequently set up business for him by himself, but by the dividends of his own perversion and his own passion, he drove himself into spiritual bankruptcy. And as you remember, the one in Luke 15, the prodigal son, would have fain fed himself from the husks that the hogs ate. And I can tell you, little man is perishing trying to survive on the husks of an earthly pleasure and pursuits. And while the swine can feed and wallow in a sty, I must tell you man's soul was made for manna from the sky. Man was made for more than that. I was out in Illinois in a camp meeting, oh, a couple, three years ago, and I did not know right from where I was speaking in that uh, encampment was near the place where a man by the name of Robert Ingersoll uh, emanated or was raised. Robert Ingersoll was a world-renowned infidel. He did not believe in God. He was an atheist of the highest order, went all over the country preaching against the fact that there is a God, which always I thought was foolish. If there wasn't such a thing, why waste your time bothering with it? But anyhow, he was a great orator. He could make words flow. He wrote one book that uh, 
nobody knows but I where it is because I want to make sure I destroy it before I die out in this world entitled The Mistakes of Moses. And it was a foolish book, I must say. But Robert Ingersoll loved his brother who did not subscribe to the attitude of atheism. And his brother died rather young. And Ingersoll, Robert Ingersoll, spoke at his uh, brother's gravesite. Eloquently, he moaned these words. Listen to them. Life is a narrow veil between the cold and barren peaks of two eternities. He says, we strive in vain to look beyond the heights. We cry aloud, and the only answer is the echo of our wailing cry. From the voiceless lips of the unreplying dead, there comes no sound. Why did he say that? Ingersoll rejected the living word. Ingersoll had no hope beyond this world. But I want to tell you, this identifying word who became incarnate and walked amongst us and went to Calvary and rose back to the right hand of the Father gives to you and me an invitation. It says he came to his own. Now when he says he came to his own, it's interesting those of his own nationality didn't receive him. The Jews did not accept him. But it was amazing how those of the Gentile world were strangely drawn to him. Um, after he rose, brought Lazarus from the, from the dead, it's interesting as the Greeks came to Philip and they asked Philip, sir, we would see Jesus. We have heard so much about him. We want to see Jesus. It's amazing to me the Jews wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But those who were not of the Jew, Judaizers religion were constantly coming. We want to see him. We want to talk to him. We want to know more about this great prophet or Messiah. But he came to his own. They received him not. But to as many as did receive him. There it is. That's the real key. To as many as did receive him. There is a responsibility that you and I have in this matter of salvation. One of the papers I have to deliver tomorrow is a paper on prevenient grace. It's a word we don't use often. Wesley was a great advocate of prevenient grace, presenting grace. It's that grace that always precedes. And there is a teaching very broad in the land that uh, we have nothing to do with our salvation. Everything is God. It's what they call monergism. And they teach, of course, that uh, God makes a decision who he's going to be elected and who's not going to be elected. We have nothing to say about it. We just have nothing at all. Well, prevenient grace refutes that. Prevenient grace right here, for example, to as many as received him, there is a pull, a conviction, a preveniency of God that draws. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. That is an act of God. You remember, he says he will not always strive with man. Why is he striving with man if man has no power to respond to the striving? Why is he the light that lighteth every man that comes into the world if the light has no bearing on our choices? But he says there is a moment when that door opens. It's what we call conviction, an awakening, a preveniency, an initiative. We come to him first, come to him because he loved us first. And in this initiative, he says, now it's up to you to receive me. He will not coerce himself on you. He will call, he will convince, he will convict, 
but he won't coerce. But he's not willing that any should perish, but all come. So consequently, there's a responsibility to as many as received him. Those of us who were the prodigal race, remember the father had bread and more than enough to spare. Remember when the father, when that prodigal son was in the hog pen and all of a sudden his friends abandoned him. He squandered all of his inheritance like the human race has done. And he sat out there thinking, man, my father has more than enough to spare. He said, I'll go back. I won't even ask to be a son if I could just be a servant. And of course, God would not adhere to that. And when he came running, the father came running to him, hugged him and kissed him, even with a stench of the hog pen all over him, made no difference. The, my son that was lost now has come back home. Jesus is the assuring word from home to welcome us to return. That's why that word was made flesh. Our elder brother has traveled from a far country to bear the good news that God's heart breaks for the return of his long lost sons and daughters. You know, I've often wondered um, whenever people lose loved ones, I, I, I see the brokenness of their hearts when the child dies or a mate dies or a family member dies or a friend dies. Can we only imagine how God must feel when we, he's constantly calling us and we turn and walk away from him, we want nothing to do with him? I've never been able to comprehend that, but I can tell you the good shepherd is tonight looking for his lost sheep, even now. The word became flesh and was full of grace and truth. The truth is that sin is still condemned. But he, the sinless son of God, suffered the penalty of sin so that he could offer you and me pardon and purity. I, uh, there's two or three things I don't do. I never read this Bible like God wrote it to anyone else. I read it like he wrote it just to me. If I don't personalize this, it means nothing. And I, I think I got initiated in that when I first met Jesus at an altar. And the gentleman came to me and took John 3.16 and he read it to me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And he said, let me tell you how you need to read that. God so loved Nelson Perdue that he gave his only begotten son that if he would believe in him, he would not have to perish but have everlasting life. When I read that, that's the way I read it. When I read this Bible, it's God's love letter to me. And until we personalize this, until we make it specific for me, we generalize way too much. It's easy to do. Oh, yeah, God loves the world and God did all this for them. No, it was my sin that required his death. My sin. The truth is that sin is still condemned, but he suffered the penalty. That my sin incurred and he went to the cross on my behalf. But he was not only full of truth, he was full of grace. Unlike Ingersoll who couldn't see beyond the heights, Jesus had come from beyond the heights to tell us there is a city of God, a city made not with hands that were eternal in the heavens, and that is why the word was made flesh. The cold and barren peaks, you know, that Ingersoll was talking about, I can tell you are glow with the unfailing lights of a celestial city we call heaven, for all who will open their hearts to receive him.
life and immortality are brought to light in the eternal word. When we receive him as our savior, we breathe the atmosphere of another world. This world is not our home. We sing the song. We're just passing through. Our citizenship is of a better country. Our citizenship is of heaven. As I was contemplating preparing this, I read some time ago, not recently, but it was about Christmas time, as I said, this is really the story of Christmas. And instead of a pastor who had been working for days on his sermon to deliver to his people on that Christmas Sunday, and he had had such a task in taking care of his, his parishioners, his flock, as it were, and he had gone to the hospitals, and he had to pray, and he had to read his word, he had to prepare the sermon, until by the time he got it all done, he was literally exhausted. And I can tell you, ministry is an exhausting work. I don't want, I don't want you to feel sorry for me, so I'll just leave it there. <laughs> I can tell you, these pastors know it's a very exhausting work, if you do it as it's supposed to be. Well, this man was so exhausted that he went early to the church to prepare for the service that Sunday morning, Christmas morning, Sunday morning. And he was so tired, he thought he'd lay down on a pew for a little while, and he went to sleep. While he was sleeping, however, he had a dream. And in the dream, it seemed as though Christ had not come. There was no Christmas. And so in his dream, he went to his library to seek for his Bible, and there was no Bible. He sought for a hymnal that held the hymns that praised the Lord that he loved. There was no hymnal. There was nothing about a Christ or Savior. So in his dream, it said he went out into the streets and said there were no churches with steeples stretching toward heaven. There was no Christmas carols ringing out the glad news that Jesus had been born. And he said he went back in his dream and sat down on a pew and a little girl come running to him. And she was very breathless. She said, come quickly. Pastor, mother's dying. And mother needs a minister to speak words of comfort to her and pray for her. When he went to comfort the mother, he went to get his New Testament. He didn't have a New Testament. There was no Christ. There was no resurrection. There was no heaven. There was no hope to comfort her with. How do I comfort her? A few days later, having passed away, he stood at the grave. And as he looked down at the casket, all he could say was, earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And then all of a sudden, he was awakened by the choir singing joy to the world. <laughs> the Lord has come. And he stood and he felt as refreshed as a young lad and stood in his pulpit and he said, I must tell the world, Jesus has come. Jesus has come. Amen. You know, when Christ, without him, there is no certain hope of a resurrection nor eternal life, nor of a blissful heaven. It would be unrelieved darkness in the light of, if the light of Christ were snuffed out. Without Christ, 
Christmas would only be a dreadful mockery. And so it is with those who refuse to receive the living word. To as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Why? Because Jesus cares. In fact, he cared so much he came. And he came on purpose to carry our sins in his own body on the tree. And to as many as receive him, to them give he the authority or the power to become sons of God. You know, I, I've, I think I caught what was saying worship is more than a song tonight. I think I was catching the message that was being sung. I do not want to get so caught up in religiosity that I miss the person of Christ. And I worry sometimes we know how to do it. We know how to be religious. We know how to go through the forms of it all. We know how to sing the song. We even know how to preach the sermons. We know how to read the Bible. But Christ is a byproduct. Is he real to you? Is he living in you? I have to tell you, to many people, it was as though Christ never did come. At least in their hearts and lives, they make no room for him. One of these days, all that's going to matter is, what did you do with Jesus? When he stood before Pilate, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? I know what I did with him. I know what you've done with him. And if there's any question in your mind about what you're doing with him, you ought to be sensitive to it tonight. Tom, I'm going to ask if you would come. We're going to sing a, a song. And it may be, you know, I think sometimes because we, I, I've often said I preach to the best people. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't preach to many non-Christians because non-Christians don't usually show up on a Tuesday night or Monday night. I don't know why they don't, but they don't. And so I don't presume but what I'm preaching to those of you who've received him. But I wonder tonight, because we only got two more services after tonight, and it may be as Pastor said he was talking to some folks, and there'll probably be others maybe come. I wonder if I could pull on you a little bit and ask you to come and stand before the altar and let's have a closing prayer following the first verse of this invitation. If you have a need, of course, you can speak to God about that need. But also, I think we need to pull on heaven that God will help us to see others come to know him. Not, if not even in this revival, through our lives, to the people you talk with. I want you just to stand with me. <clears throat>